Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us and how we could grow in empathy and understanding in our very divided moment. Each episode I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform, from politicians to poets, archbishops to academics, journalists to entrepreneurs. Turns out that there aren't that many professions that begin with a J. I try and host a conversation that gets beyond the usual positioning or promotional interview and dig into the real person in front of me. We try and create space for deeper self-reflection than we often have time for in our hustle-ridden society. I believe, and this podcast has reinforced the belief, that everyone is more interesting and more complicated than they seem, and that paying attention to people in all their complexity and fragility is a vital discipline for democracy. It's a spiritual discipline. It helps us remain fully human and treat other people as fully human in an age where a range of factors are forming us in the opposite direction. Gosh, that's a manifesto. And it makes it all sound really heavy. But it's also just an opportunity for me to have a lovely chat with someone interesting and experience that deeply pleasurable sensation of my brain having a new thought or seeing things in a new way. As usual, we massively value it when you leave a review or a rating or send an episode to a friend. Loads of listeners come via personal recommendations or actually because a guest has shared the podcast and said that it's been a really life-giving experience to them, which just warms my heart. In this episode, I spoke with Jen Ashworth. Jen is an award-winning novelist, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a professor of writing at Lancaster University. We spoke about, well, it actually felt like we spoke about everything, but some of the things we spoke about were her childhood in Mormonism, a really troubled and difficult childhood and teenage years. We spoke about class. We spoke about the turbulence around identity and free speech on university campuses at the moment. We spoke about trauma and how society is thinking more about trauma and speaking about trauma and what that might mean and much else besides. It was a really rich and enjoyable conversation and I hope you enjoy listening. So I ask guests what is sacred to them if they have a sacred value really as a way of just hopefully gifting a different type of reflection than is normally um, asked of us. So you can reject the premise, you can take it in a different direction, but having had a little bit of time, did you have a sense of what bubbled up, what might be sacred to you or whatever your equivalent, whatever language feels right for you? I guess my absolute first gut response was something to do with curiosity. Um, it seems when I look back over, over the way that I've lived my life, when I've been happy, when I've been doing good work, when the harm that I have been doing to others has been reasonably limited, it seems I've been guided by curiosity. And I guess under curiosity, there were a couple of other um, values, things that made curiosity possible. And for me, what, what makes curiosity possible First is doubt. I cherish doubt. I cherish um, the discomfort of not knowing, not trusting. I was thinking about Flannery O'Connor where she talks. So she she asks in the habit of being, how comfortable are you with walking in the dark? Um, 
being in the dark, being uncomfortable walking in the dark is one of the things that makes curiosity possible. And the other for me is is gratitude. Maybe we'll come back to gratitude later, but um gets a bad rap. It is um not very cool. Um there's something about gratitude that I think makes us incredibly vulnerable. We have to say here is this thing that I need that I cannot do for myself, that I that that I needed something or someone else to give me. It requires us to be connected to the world and, and open to the world and to other people. And I think also it it a practice of gratitude kind of rem- it, it puts us right size. Um it, it, it reminds us of our limits, as does curiosity. So loads of other things I could say yeah. that might I don't know, act as nice introductions for things that we might talk about for our profit and the profit of others and would have allowed me to advertise myself in some way. But actually, when I am feeling um, offended or impinged upon or depressed or oppressed, it is generally because my capacity to be curious, to have space to honour doubt, and to practice gratitude have been, um, I guess, prevented or constricted in some way. Yeah, that's so powerful. Also, I love how you can't help but be mentally structuring the conversation in your head in lifetime. (laughs) What thread do we plant here that can reference back as an echo? Um, And that's why you're amazing. Uh, No, it's why I'm a control freak. (laughs) Possibly both, again. Um, I want to hear about your childhood and... uh, There's lots that we can talk about here, but I try and at least frame it to begin with as big ideas, philosophical, religious, political, that have been really formative to you in your childhood. So paint us a bit of a picture of Jen growing up in Preston, near Preston. Yes, yeah. I was born in Preston in the early 80s. Um, Very ordinary uh, working class family. My dad worked as a machinist in a factory that made paper um, and my mum did various things. She ran a playgroup and she did some cleaning jobs. She works in a primary school now. So really, really ordinary background. The thing that maybe wasn't ordinary that was extremely formative was that I was also raised a Mormon. Um, I guess for for those of you who don't know, Mormonism is a, a kind of Christianity. It's a very high demand group is, is one way of putting it. Um, I think if there is a God, she can find you anywhere. And yet I would find it difficult to grow well in that environment. Um, so it was an environment characterised for me in my experience, very much by obedience, um, very works based. It was very patriarchal. Um, there was a kind of white supremacy to it that that was and is very troubling, a homophobia. It was not the best of what Christianity has to offer. And yet it was the soil that grew me. It was um, the the air I was breathing. It, it absolutely formed me. It gave me a an appetite and a curiosity about faith um, that has never left me. A lot of a lot of scripture, right? You're right about yeah. l- learning in a way that I have never done. <laughs> Yeah, I I went to seminary, which um, for Mormons, what that means is it's a class that children go to and you go through the 
books of scripture. You spend four years doing it. So you spend a year on the New Testament, a year on the Old Testament, a year on the Book of Mormon, which is a the extra book of scripture. Um, maybe we'll get onto that. Um, and a year on the Doctrine and Covenants, which are the writings of the one of the first prophets, Joseph Smith. I am um, skived and failed cemetery. So I, I skived and failed cemetery. <laughs> oh love what, what an amazing yeah what an amazing Freud keep that in don't edit it out I skived and failed seminary I was not a good seminary student but part of what we did was learn scripture off by heart which is certainly come in useful um there was there was a lot of public speaking involved as well um there was a, a monthly it was called a fast and testimony meeting. And during that meeting, which was held on a Sunday, anyone could come to the pulpit and speak about anything, women, children, anyone. And there was a pattern to it. And it was normally a testimony about how God had moved in your life that week. But I remember, even as a very young child, listening to these testimonies and giving them and being enormously interested in what it is we do when we try and explain ourselves or advertise ourselves or confess or um, sell ourselves in a particular way. What is it about first person spiritual autobiography? Um, and I learned that. I learned that as a kid. Super interested. So, yeah. What if oh, the language is also insufficient, but God, the divine... The thing beyond was that a, a thing? Was there? A, did you have a presence? Did you have a belief? Was it just a set of practices that you were going to because you've been told to? It it was certainly a set of practices. Um, I was rewarded for obedience with a great deal of warmth and approval, um, which I enjoyed. It was a community that could be when you were obedient, very nourishing. There are people who I grew up with who are like family, who've known me since I was born, um, people who I've grown, you know, grown up with as if they were siblings. Um, and all of that was valuable in a certain way. But no, I, I did not have any experience of something beyond because I was so focused on um, behaviour, on getting it right. And that the standard for behaviour was so high and so invasive in every aspect of life. Even as a teenager, we, um, I was interviewed about sex, about my sex life, and not to protect me, but to, um, to, to, to assess me. It was a kind of surveillance. So what that did was just put all the effort, all the, um, all the emphasis on behaviour. So I got really good at, at pretending. Um, I was a very, very anxious, very depressed child and teenager. I might have been anyway. I might have been no matter what kind of environment I was brought up in. But that was not an environment that made it easy for me to find any kind of connection with anything that was beyond. But I saw that some people did. Or I saw that they said that they did. Um, and that intrigued me. The possibility of it was always there. And I found that really intriguing. And, and I guess this leads me on to the, the other thing that, that has influenced me and has really formed me. I said I was very anxious and I was very depressed. Um, 
by the time I was 12, I was refusing to go to school. My hair was falling out in handfuls. I was very, very distressed and I was very aggressive. I was very angry. I was refusing to go to school. I was medicated before I was 12. There were um, education welfare officers, school psychologists, um, psychiatrists, all kinds of things. And from that point until, really until I went to university at 18, I was given a series of diagnoses. I was medicalized. Who I was and my experience was named for me through medicine. Um, that's not something that's useful for me anymore. That's something that I had to fight my way out of. As, as I did that kind of religious community as well. But it was definitely really um, the words that we use to describe distress and suffering and whether, where they come from and who gets to decide what they are have been of interest to me my whole life. And, and that's one of the reasons why. And there's another thread that I'm aware I don't want to kind of press on a sore place, but my reading of your memoir is that your dad, who, mm. who wasn't initially a Mormon and then it sounds like converted, was, mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, I was reading him as abusive, but mm-hmm. do you mind saying a little bit about him? No, I don't. Um, I mean, my dad is alive um, and I think it would be unfair to tell his story. Um, but I can certainly say that my experience was that for a lot of my childhood, I felt afraid. Um, I felt shamed. I was um, subject to violence. I was subject to emotional violence, physical violence, and I witnessed that as well. And it was, um, yeah, I guess if that's the way that you are brought up, the difference is it's not something that happens to you. It's something that makes you. It forms you. And so part of becoming an adult for me was in thinking about these quite violent religious systems or family systems or systems of medicine that had formed me um, almost against my will. And what what was I going to be aside from that? What languages would I find to describe my own experience aside from the ones that, not that I'd been offered, but that had been inflicted on me by others? Yeah. And you write in your memoir about, you've mentioned the early kind of encounter with memorizing scripture in the sense that Mormonism is a very kind of literary or definitely word-based culture, which Mm -hmm. encourages journaling. It sounds like writing your experience was something that started very young. Yeah, yeah. Um, There were gifts of my childhood as well as difficulties. Mormons are encouraged to keep journals, to keep spiritual autobiographies they're encouraged to read they're encouraged to um, create texts and share them with other people to share their um, family histories with each other their testimonies with each other um, Mormonism has got it's got its own publishing company um, Deseret Books which um, you know is this huge industry of stories by and about Mormons so the idea that I could tell a story about my own life and that that would be important and that that would have value to someone else that was that was always expected, and that was something that applied to women and girls as well as as well as to men, which I was really grateful for. I mean, the pressures that are put on the way that story is told and how it should be told are, are perhaps um, not ones that were were particularly fertile for me. But the idea that that words were powerful, that 
you know, Joseph Smith, um, the first prophet, the founder of Mormonism, um, he was a prophet or he was a novelist or he was both. Um, and, and I find that idea of the anarchic, disruptive potential of stories and words, um, I was gifted it as a child by Mormonism and I am grateful for that. Yeah. It, one of the many astonishing things about your story is after really significant, and again, the language is challenging, but for shorthand, significant mental health challenges and then years mm-hmm. and years and years of school refusal, which it sounds like you spent mainly in the library. Yes. You <laughs> got into Cambridge and we're in a completely different world. What was the sort of emotional landing like in that transition? <laughs> yeah, I... I you know, when, when you asked me to think about what these formative influences were of my growing up years, and I, I thought first about Mormonism and then I thought about medicine, psychiatric medicine. And the third one was about class. Um, I don't suppose there are lots and lots of people who have experience of pupil referral units and um, kind of residential um, child psychiatric care and um, local authority children's homes, these types of institutions. But they do tend to be an interesting preparation for the institution as a Cambridge college. And, and you know, the, the idea of existing inside someone else's structure was was familiar to me. I read, um, there's a really great book that that you probably are familiar with. It's, it's Lindsay Hanley's Respectable. Um, she writes about growing up in the Midlands, kind of respectable working class, and then going to uni and becoming different, becoming middle class, but not quite, and never being working class again. And that idea of of moving, of being between, of not quite belonging, that is something that I felt as a child where I was never a kind of ordinary working class kid because I was a Mormon, and something I felt as a Mormon because I was always kind of faking it and something I felt at Cambridge as well. Um, These are gifts for a writer to move through all these spaces and belong so uncomfortably to them. You have this great phrase where you say when you got to university, people asked you a lot, and were there books in your house growing up? They did. They did. (laughs) What do you think they they meant by that? that? (laughs) They asked me that, um, yeah, quite a lot. I I have a really nice memory of someone telling me... um, in the north they sold lots more dog food than there were actual dogs and looking at me meaningfully and it was like many, what does that many, even mean well I didn't know at the time but many months later I realized that they were implying that we ate it <laughs> um which do you know these these people who I were who I was in touch with or who I was I was living with they were Exactly the same as me, which were bookish, bright, 18-year-olds. If you're not allowed to be a bit of a wally at 18, then then when are you, really? So I kind of don't hold too many grudges uh, uh, about that. I became aware that I was working class and that I was northern in a way that I hadn't before. I hadn't had this kind of huge class awareness or a huge awareness of a regional identity until I went away to university. And I could say that I went to Newnham College. It was a women's college. It was one of the first places that I had felt safe. It was one of the first places where I had been able to 
really have what I wanted, which was a library ticket and to be left alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, yeah, so, so and both of their stories are true. Both of them are true. Are you weeping? Sorry, I, I'm a crier. <laughs> Just the idea it. of an 18 year old who's never felt safe feels worth crying for me. I was aware at 18, as a, this working class kid, I knew that the story I was supposed to tell about Cambridge was was one of inhospitability to that working class self. And I do have stories like that and I can tell stories like that. But there was another story there that was true as well, which is I was surrounded by women who wanted to read, who thought reading was important and who did not use language of um, religious obedience or medical diagnosis to describe me. Um, and, And that, was I think I I think I bloomed I think I flourished there despite everything and I want to just kind of dig a little deeper in that thread a little bit about class and Mm. it's one of the the divides or the the tribal framings that we use in in our common life but it I don't know if you'd agree with this but it feels to me in our moment of much more increased awareness of identity and group-based identity and forms of injustice and conversations about these differences. Class still doesn't seem very high up that list. What Mm. what do you think is going on there? Or you can disagree with me, obviously. Um, No, I do. I agree with you. And which is not to say I think it necessarily needs to be higher up the list. Um, I wonder if it's because it's so unbelievably difficult to define and that our attempts to define it tend to limit or offend people. I, I, I don't know what I am anymore. Um, I have a spare bedroom. I can work at home if I want. I had a, a miserable lockdown. I also had a very, very comfortable one. Um, I'm not I, I don't even know if I pass as middle class. I suspect not. Um, I'm but this sort of imaginary professor. police that we all do, I think, probably <laughs> yeah. think exist because we're British people and it's in our yeah. DNA. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how I am read. Um, I know that my kids are middle class and my parents aren't. And that that is really um, a really interesting place to be in. Um, I try and teach my kids that they're lucky, but... I was taught that as a kid as well. You know, don't all parents try and teach their kids that? So, yeah, don't, I don't think we do particularly well on our conversations around class. But I am, I, I, I think the idea that our identities are intersectional and that we can claim different identities as we progress through life, we can put them down, they can claim us, it can be such a fluid thing. That, to me, feels like a more important thing to to embrace and to get to grips with than trying to peg me or someone else on a scale which is partly to do with education partly to do with money and sort of not either (laughs) so you have this kind of double experience of liberation and inhospitableness um at cambridge Uh, but obviously it was effective um in lots of ways because in your 20s, you started writing and, and publishing novels. That's a very shorthand way of saying something that I'm sure was really... Did you did you know? Were you like, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to write novels and and the expectation that that is something that you could do? Or was it a slow finding your calling in the world and the confidence to seek that? I wanted to be a writer from when I was tiny. Um, I, got a, I asked for a typewriter when I was three. I know 
that working class kids from my background aren't supposed to become novelists, but I didn't know that until I'd already decided I was going to be one. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me that not knowing any novelists, not knowing how books were made, having no idea about the publishing industry, no connections, never visited London until I think I was about 19. I, it did not occur to me that these could possibly be obstacles. It was the sheer um, arrogance of what happens when you raise a child in Mormonism, telling that child their job is to evolve to become a god. Of course, they're going to come up with some crazy ambition to be a novelist. <laughs> so I did. Um, but I also, also wanted to be um, a, a murder detective or a pathologist. I was, I was quite keen on that. And if there is a doppelganger or a gen clone out there in another world doing that job, I would be so thrilled. So thrilled. Yes, the the gory and the dark and yes. uh, horror is definitely a thread in your aesthetic that feels like it's um, stayed. I love this idea that's the vicarious side hustle that's just coming mm. through in what you do. And you published several um, critically acclaimed novels hailed as a, you know, up and coming bright young writer and then had this very traumatic experience of labour I find it hor as I was reading it. I found it horrifyingly familiar how normal <laughs> that yes. seems of, of my friends who've had children. I was like, "Oh yeah, Hannah and Jen and Rachel—they all mm -hmm. nearly died too." <laughs> like, mm -hmm. um, but the your memoir notes made while, while falling is really this process of trying to is is a, is is trying to process the would. And again, I don't want to label you, and you've helpfully kind of raised questions about psychiatric labeling yes but you use various words forms of words in the book what how would you describe the kind of post period of that traumatic delivery so after the childhood that I'd had um I went to university I shrugged off these different identities that I had been given by medicine um I was no longer an apostate I was no longer depressed I was no longer um a godless rebel I was no longer anxious delusional personality disordered instead what I was going to be was successful so I went and got my degree and started publishing novels um I settled down I became a functioning adult that was the plan and then um I had a baby and during the getting out of the baby. I like to call it the great disemboweling of 2010. Um, there was a, a terrible, mis not a mistake, um, uh, the C-section went wrong. I was hemorrhaging. I needed to have um, a blood transfusion. A general anesthesia wore off while I was being operated on and I had anaphylaxis as a result of the blood transfusion. So it was a shit show. And what happened as a result of that was all this armour that I had put on um, being okay, being successful, being good at stuff, um, it just broke. It just broke. And there are various words and diagnoses that other people gave me for that time. But but I was um, I was in distress, I will say. I was in great, deep distress. It affected my relationships. Um, it affected my work. It affected my sense of who I was in the world and um, the stories I was able to tell about myself, what I felt was real, what I felt wasn't real. There was not one bit of my life that was not 
damaged by my distress and how I acted because I was distressed. And it was it was such a shock because I thought I was okay and I was doing well. Um, and since then, talking to other people, what I have what I've come to know is that that's quite a common story that people can spend so much effort in outrunning difficulty that by the time they get to their safe place, a little tap on the armor can explode them. And and that is what happened. Having read your um, memoir, I went and did a Google engram on the word trauma. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing so beautifully is wrestling with the difficulty of writing about trauma. And I kind of want to come back to trauma in the public conversation and how we're doing with it. But I'd love you to speak just a bit more personally about the questions that that member was asking, which is, what is wrong with me? But also the fact that that experience made it very difficult for you to write fiction. And you started asking, what is wrong with the novel? Why Mm -hmm. can't this hold it unpack that kind of journey for you as as just almost professionally the way the trauma was affecting that yeah that you have identified the two questions that powered notes made while falling and and one was yeah what's wrong with me and I had been told in various ways what was wrong with me my entire life um, and I had decided that none of those words or labels suited me And yet there was still something wrong. Um, I was still in distress. I was still suffering. What was wrong with me? And the way that I had learned as a fairly competent adult to meet the world and to sit with my questions was through writing. And so I tried to address the question of what was wrong with me through fiction. Most of my novels, you know, they're certainly not autobiographical, but they have an impulse that comes from my experience. I have experienced um, loneliness. And from that, I wrote A Kind of Intimacy, even though there's nothing autobiographical about that book. I've experienced um, what it is to, to try and function in a family, in a tight religious community. And so I wrote um, The Friday Gospels, even though that book is is not autobiographical. And I thought, you know, what's wrong with me? What's happened to me? What's wrong with me after I've had a baby? The baby's okay. I'm okay. I'm physically okay. Why am I not okay? Um, I thought I would answer that through fiction. And I started trying to write a novel about a woman who was a university lecturer and she was going mad and she was getting mixed up between lecturing and writing fiction and praying. That was the plan. I thought it sounded like a brilliant idea for a novel, but I just couldn't do it. And so my next question was, what what is wrong with the novel? And there was something that the novel, or the novel as I understood it at that time, that it seemed to require a certainty of the way that time worked and cause and effect and plot and the way that people would respond to each other and to events and that people would learn something and there would be change across time and there would be some kind of resolution. Um, I don't mean to to critique these kind of novels. I love those kind of novels and I really wanted to write one, but I couldn't. And part of the question was, okay, there's definitely something wrong with me, but is there also something wrong with the novel that I cannot address this question in fiction? And so that led to Notes Made While Falling, which is partly a memoir and it, partly is a book that retains some of the relics of that original novel which was a woman lecturing and writing fiction and praying it 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 seems to um be haunted by those modes of speaking to a reader or to someone else um i don't think i came up with a good answer 
though. Maybe this is the point in the podcast where I'm supposed to dispense it. I just didn't. I didn't come up with my answer to what was wrong with me or the novel. I don't require that and the uh, <laughs> asking of it. I, I guess that's what I learned through through writing those essays, that I, what I wanted was to find the answer to those questions, and I didn't. And I was, not only did the birth experience completely knock me away from a plan from my life that that this is how I was going to live my life and then I couldn't um I had a plan for the book and I just couldn't couldn't do it but what actually happened in my life and in the book and in the writing that I didn't plan was really so much more interesting yeah um back to my google engram which I hope is relevant trauma Um, trauma. so yeah it woundedness woundedness so it's not, it doesn't really show up in books until the 1940s. And then it mm-hmm. goes so steady. And then huge spike in the 80s, which I am curious about. And I will go work out what's going on there. And then sort of steadily going up, although it only goes up to 2019. And my instinct would be it would be like almost vertical for the last two yes. or three years. It feels certainly like five years ago, I associated the word with soldiers. And we mm-hmm. mainly thought about trauma in a warfare context. Yes. And possibly in, well, definitely, but not in the public imagination, kind of situations of abuse, mm-hmm. abuse of childhoods. But the our concept of it has broadened this understanding mm-hmm. that traumatic events in lives away from the battlefield can have mm-hmm. these far-reaching impacts. I'd love to just hear your thoughts about that how useful it is, how we navigate that ongoing conversation really well in ways that is as kind of helpful and healing across our divides as possible. I think people are more willing to talk about their woundedness, their suffering, and they are. there's also a discomfort. When we talk about checking our privilege, I think sometimes what people mean is, am I allowed to be suffering the way that I really am? There's a there's a, a book, um, an essay by Zadie Smith called Suffering Like Mel Gibson, and she she talks about her kind of privilege in lockdown. Um, and, you know, this tendency we had during lockdown to almost emphasise, OK, I'm not working on the front line. You know, my parents haven't died from COVID. I've still got my job, dot, dot, dot. All of that is true. And it is right that we, we I hate the phrase, check our privilege. It's right that we be grateful. It is. It is. It is right that we understand where we've been lucky through through no effort or design of our own. But none of that cures you of suffering. It just doesn't. And Zadie Smith's essay, she has this phrase called "the suffering is precisely designed," and it kind of doesn't matter if you're rich or live in you know this kind of gilded existence. We're we're not all going to have the same kinds of suffering. This this woundedness. This is where the word trauma comes from, woundedness. I'm not sure it's helpful to think about it as something that happens to you and that if you have certain kinds of privileges, you're protected from that thing happening to you. Not all of us are going to be raped. Not all of us are going to be subject to racist abuse. Not all of us are going to have exactly the same kinds of wounding. But I do think if uh, the Buddhist word dukkha, I think is is really, really helpful here. It's quite blandly translated as um, unsatisfactoriness. And I would say like that the, 
the gen translation of that would be like the crushing, soul-deep, relentless agony of the world and other people and we ourselves not being the way that we want it. Um, and, and it does not matter what your privilege is. That is, a, in my view, absolutely inescapably true. And I, I you know, trauma, suffering, drinker, agony is, is the word for it. Yeah. I, my sort of shorthand to myself sometimes is existential queasiness. Yeah. This yeah. like being alive is hard today. Yeah. <laughs> You, as well as uh, writing somehow and parenting, you also teach in a university. Um, and we often characterise universities, and I think to, for some good reason, as almost like ground zero of the culture wars or this sense of like something is quaking in how <laughs> we see each other, deal with each other, name ourselves, name other people, understand the world. What's been your experience of that? What I have noticed working in universities, working in our university for the last 10 years, is a real awareness of the power of, of speech and conversation. And so we've got two things happening in universities at the moment. Um, and one is the idea of no platforming, that the student union or the university itself will um, deprive a group or an individual, an organisation of the right to speak formally or informally at the university um, and whether this is censorship or not. And this is an idea that has been addressed in various kind of corners of, of our media and certainly the, the right wing press and, and the government are characterising that this as an attack on freedom of speech. And something else that's happening, you know, and this is kind of the big picture life on campus, the bigger conversations on campus. What I experience also daily in the classroom, in the creative writing workshop, is, is the idea of the content note or the trigger warning, a way of containing or excluding or managing conversations in the workshop. I think the first thing that I would say is that what I know is that in universities, there's an absolute epidemic of, of um, we might call it mental ill health, we might call it distress amongst young people that is systemic, it is overwhelming to staff and, and to the NHS, and that the students who are in distress and who are ill and who are unsupported, that is so much more of a, a threat to their ability to speak freely, to speak boldly, to do good work, to discover what needs to be discovering than a content note on a text. And I would also say in terms of the structure of academia, the precarity for early career researchers, the difficulty of getting a job, the way that PhD students are exploited by the system for years before they can get those, those kind of full-time academic jobs. That economic precarity is so much more of a threat to academic freedom and free speech than no platforming. And, and you know, that is a little bit of a rant, but I think that it's really important that that's not forgotten in this conversation. But in terms of how to do those conversations, it seems to me that the students who call for controversial speakers to be no platformed and the students who are asking for content notes on controversial material in the workshop, what they are asking for is safety. And, and it, it seems to me that, that it is our duty, my duty as someone who is in that community and has accrued relative privilege um, 
to listen to that. You you asked me in preparation for our conversation what I thought we might do differently or speak to each other differently across difference. Um, and I thought about these situations and I thought about being a teacher and, and as someone who has responsibility, as someone who can talk at length, like I'm doing now, and, and have people pay attention that that what my job is is to listen. And and I thought a bit more about how teachers and how academics often listen. Um that there's sometimes a listening with an agenda. There's a kind of Socratic questioning going on, some ironic questioning where I will prove to you by the mode of my listening where you are wrong or where you need to think a bit better. And I'm I'm actually wondering if I could achieve a, an agendaless listening that makes room, makes space for someone else, um, gets out of the way. You listen to someone, you're going to give them shelter. Um, which is not to say that I, that, that I can listen to everybody and that the students who are calling for certain voices to be no-platformed or certain materials to be handled very carefully in the classroom. I think what they're saying is we can't listen to that right now. And I know that when I reach... Um, when I come into contact with something that I cannot listen to, my next job is to go inside and listen to me, listen to myself, to have some kind of inner hospitality. What is it that's going on in me that I can't hear? Um, and there's something to do with this that I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so delicate and it's so difficult that kind of big soundbitey rules about you know, platforming and content, note, content notes and the way that that's conveyed in the press it will never capture the kind of gentle intimacy of what it is to be in a classroom with students and try and make, get out of the way and make some space for them and to try and listen to them and to try and create the kind of conditions that I had when I was listened to. And, and I have been listened to very well in lots of different places, um, but especially in classrooms over, over the years. I don't know if that gets anywhere near it, but there's something about conversation where we think it's about talking. Um, I don't know if we're good at talking. I've just said a lot, but I think listening makes us so vulnerable and it requires such a lot of care and love and attention. It also requires us to search out the quiet speaker. Um, the, the, the one who's not in the news, the one who's not loud, the one who's not, um, who's not fashionable, who's not, who's not um, attractive, and to listen, listen to that person. It's a searching out. Yeah. Yeah, it, the more I do this podcast, the more I realise how much, how much fear is driving these divisions, how mm. much actually... One group is scared of the other group yes. and feel delegitimized and dishonored or disempowered and not mm -hmm. safe. There was a, I wish I'd screenshotted it. There was a little thing on Twitter earlier, which was a kind of 
older woman saying, you know, these younger feminists don't understand that a woman with children in her 40s and 50s could be politically active and they don't know any of us and they don't care about any of us. And then a younger feminist saying, these older feminists, they keep trying to de-woman us by saying that if we don't have children, then our feminist voices. And it was just this painful little microcosm of two Mm -hmm. groups just being, what about me? What about me? Like, see me, see me, like, take me seriously. But the only way to express that being to attack the other Mm -hmm. group Mm -hmm. and... And it matters. And, you know, when people use phrases like, you know, check your privilege, it can often, um, you know, it gets people's backs up. It gets my back up. Um, But I try and inwardly translate it. And when I am being asked to check my privilege, I I try and kind of run that through the, the Gen Google Translate. And so what I hear is attend to where you have been listened to, where and in which conversations and in which settings my words matter, they carry mate, they carry weight, they cause change. We don't all have the same answer to that question. Some of us don't have an answer to that question. We don't have that experience, but I certainly do. And because I have had that experience, I have the bandwidth to make space and to listen to other people. And I not always, there are some types of discourse, to use an ugly word, that... I can't listen to because it injures me and my priority in that moment is to listen to the part of me that is injured and to to care for that part and to protect that part and that is more important but where I can listen I want to um and and that to me is such a tiny thing that I have to offer there we started talking about your childhood mormonism and mm. at the end of your memoir is a kind of extended meditation on prayer. I can see that you've been reading lots of my favourite theologically inclined women. Mm -hmm. If it's not too private, where do you sit on religion, spirituality, God, these ineffable things now? Um, I I very, maybe it brings us back to those questions, those words that I brought in at the beginning. Um, I have a very, very precious and cherished doubt um so I would not call myself an atheist but I certainly do not um belong to any kind of church or religious group um I am attracted to thinkers who have quite troubled relationships with religious groups so I've been reading a lot of Iris Murdoch who was kind of fascinated by Christianity couldn't write about God called it good um really quite liked Christianity apart from miracles and and the action of the divine in the world she's a very con- contradictory person um reading um reading Kierkegaard who yeah kind of great religious thinker who um I think really really pissed off yeah he did <laughs> deliberately kind of spent his life trying to piss off the institutional church where he lived. Um, Simone Weil, who, um, a, a Jewish woman who kind of refused to convert to Catholicism, um, even though I think she was probably a very good Catholic in lots of ways. Um, so I'm interested in these very troubled relationships with institutions. I don't know if my upbringing means that I will always be allergic to... Um, churches into religious ritual I think it would be a shame if it was always like that but it is how it that is how it is now um I feel still quite spiritually injured in that way um 
in terms of prayer so I used to think that prayer was was like um sort of like writing a letter to Santa Claus or maybe learning precisely how to operate a fruit machine so that the money had come out the bottom um I wish it was like that um where I am with that now I I I do have kind of various spiritual practices and and one of them is is meditating and and what I do when I meditate is that I sit really quiet and I listen um as well as possible and often what I hear is the like endless miserable churn of my own ego and sometimes that is quiet and when I am in that quiet place um it's such a relief not to be the center of the world um such a delight I would like more experiences like that. It's such a kind of tiny childlike, what do they call it in the Bible? Mustard seed. Um, but that's it. That's all I've got. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, I'm alive and functioning fairly well. <laughs> oh, Jen Ashworth, thank you so much for speaking <laughs> been, to me on The Sacred. Thank no, thank you for the invitation. It's been so much fun and how rare it is to be able to have conversations about such tender and important subjects and it not be um like twitter beef or having a row somehow adversarial yeah having a row with someone mad on facebook or trying to convert someone or you know i felt my vulnerability in this conversation but yours too and that's been really lovely well I knew I was going to find Jen extremely interesting to talk to, and I did. Her sacred values, I thought, were very powerful. One day I'd love to get someone to illustrate all the different things that people have said are sacred. Maybe I'll have a chat with Emily Down, who's the Theos illustrator and amazing at these things. Jen said, curiosity, doubt, and gratitude. And they are all wonderful. It was actually gratitude that she really helped me understand at a deeper level, because we talk a lot about gratitude and gratitude journals and all those kind of things. But she talked about gratitude in relation to vulnerability, that you actually can't be grateful unless you acknowledge your interdependence, unless you acknowledge that you needed something that you couldn't do for yourself, or you received something that you couldn't get for yourself. Or maybe that you could get for yourself, but you didn't have to. And I think a lot about the sort of idea of gift in theology. It's a, it's a really deep sort of theological anthropology that understanding that life is a gift and that we are most ourselves when we give of ourselves, not in transactional, individualistic ways, but in more of a dance of giving and receiving. Um, and that connected into gratitude and vulnerability in a new way for me. Mormonism, huh? What an interesting and different story Jen has because of that. I would really recommend reading her memoir. It is very powerful. And there's just aren't that many Mormons in the UK. I think she's the first one I've met. And certainly I can't think of Mormons in public life, practicing Mormons at least, in the UK. Maybe I should speak to one. Maybe if there's someone who's still very much part of that movement and finds it life-giving I'd love it to interview them too um 
Uh, yeah, the strength of the kind of written tradition with Mormonism and how actually that's a powerfully fertile formation for a writer came through really clearly, as did, of course, a lot of the pain and the control that Jen experienced. Um, I really liked what she said about class and Cambridge, that she can hold two things in her mind at once, which is maybe um, kind of entry level for a writer, that it was both incredibly inhospitable because of uh, the fact she was Northern and working class, but also the first place she felt safe and they gave her a library ticket and left her alone, which is what she'd ever wanted. I think of several people in my life who uh, that is true of. Uh, and I loved it. She spoke so beautifully about trauma and privilege and suffering. It reminded me of Kate Bowler's book, No Cure for Being Human, that are, it's such a childlikeness to our suffering, right? We want it to be acknowledged that we find life hard. And actually, we can't cope with that much information about how other people find life hard often. It takes a lot of character and a lot of moral muscle to pay attention to how other people find life hard um, and to acknowledge both where trauma exists in others and, I guess, in ourselves. I'm always reminded of the Stephen Sondheim song from Company, the musical, which is just called Being Alive. And it's about a man or in one of the modern productions of women talking about longing to find a romantic partner. One of the lines is to help me survive being alive. The bittersweet, exquisite, painful, wonderful experience of being a human being and the way writing and religion and listening will help us, I think. Um, Jim was so powerful on listening and I love what she said about checking your privilege, going through her Jen Google Translate and ending up as attend to where you have been listened to. Attend to where you have been listened to and acknowledge where people might not have been listened to. And again, just the power of listening to someone. Simone Vey's thing about attention being the kindest and rarest or most powerful and rarest I can't imagine the exact quote but attention being the most the rarest and most powerful form of generosity that we can give to people oof I'm very stirred those are my reflections for today thanks for listening thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.